0: Wednesday Breakfast acknowledges that we broadcast from the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri and Boon Wurrung peoples of the Kulin Nation. We pay respect to their elders, past, present and emerging, and acknowledge the continued resilience of First Nation peoples in the face of ongoing colonisation and settlement. We recognise sovereignty was never ceded and the treaty was never signed. This
1: is 3CR Breakfast. Oh, yeah. Alternative news, analysis, Clap and current hands. affairs. Monday to Friday, 7 a.m. Oh, to late 30 a.m.
2: Early double.
3: Clap your
4: the- baby, baby,
2: baby,
1: baby. Okay, hello and welcome to the 17th of June. It's Wednesday breakfast, and you're in studio with Idwin and Jess. Good morning good morning how are you we're we're doing all right this week um here at 3cr things are starting to get a little bit more back to normal we're having uh one person in studio at the moment so you should hear shows like joe toscano back on air and a few others um but uh, apart from that like just how how's your week been personally
0: it's been okay it's been pretty hectic pretty stressful um but I've just been trying to take some time to read a lot this week I think because I do find it really hard to read when I've got a lot of things going on so I'm trying to fix that
1: Mm, I definitely agree Reading's one of those things which like I think to be honest secondary schools train it out of you because you've got so many texts you have to do for VCE and then you go to uni and you have to do your readings it really does like what starts off as, at a young age just like kind of like a passion or something that's lovely. Yeah, starts it's so much mature. fun. Yeah, it's yeah it's, I definitely,
0: I agree with you. It's like this is what you have to do over yeah. summer and something that you may not necessarily like or enjoy and then it just, it it tears it away because you want to mess with the system and you don't want to read what they tell you to read.
1: Mm, absolutely. So <laughs> good on you for getting back into reading. I know it's, it's it sounds, it's such a, it's such a, um, petty complaint you know oh i haven't been able to read but it's like it's true Um, i I think especially also with our 24 7 news cycle and the fact that we're constantly getting information uh reading just becomes more and more inaccessible you just don't no one has the brain space for it
0: yeah no it it does yeah it really does take up a lot of brain space and you really have to put that time aside to do it which is a shame but it's good to sort of train your mind to be able to let go and do something that you love
1: and what's been the like the book of choice for you
0: it's actually called – I picked it up. I don't, I'm not, I don't really know how I feel about it yet, but it's called mm-hmm. Lost in the Spanish Quarter. I can't remember the author right now, mm-hmm. um, but it's a lovely romantic one that I'm not usually – I don't usually go for. So I'm really swapping – I'm really trying new things this week. No, no. Nice. <laughs> which is great. Nice. Um, which is great, but, yeah, I've I'm liking been, it so far, I guess. What about yeah,
1: you? I, well, I've just been recommended Fascists Among Us, The Online Hate on oh. the Christchurch Massacre by Jeff Sparrow.
0: So that sounds something much more up my
1: alley, so <laughs> so that's something that i'm I'm going to try and get into over the next week. It's been platformed by like the Saturday paper and stuff like that, mm-hmm. and it should be talking about contemporary fascism. And the antithesis of fascism will be what I'm talking about today in my interview, where I talk to Siobhan Johnson. This is from activism at the Margins, and we discuss black joy as theory and method in resisting this kind of white um, Western narrative that we're seeing over and over in our media and stuff right now jess what are you doing
0: uh yeah so my interview is actually based on a article that i came across on the conversation um it's i don't know whether any anybody's read it but it's entitled why more needs to be done for democracy to work in sudan it explains the very long history of violence and injustice to the sudanese people Um, at the hands of um, Al-Bashir, his government, um, and their severe military rule and conflict. But the main focus of the article is how the new government has begun to establish itself. So I actually got to interview one of the authors, who's a PhD candidate for Middle Eastern studies at Exeter University in Exeter. Um, His name is Jahad Mashamun. Um, he, we chat, we had a great chat and we, he explained very well, um, the current political struggles with the new government and how we can expect to see Sudan progress because it is, it's it's almost—it's real nail-biting <laughs> what's happening and how they're actually coming to terms with trying to set up a more democratic sort of government.
1: Mm. And always a story, like always a story that gets put on page, you know, four. It always yes. pushed it back. We never hear about it, despite as you said, it being such a complex and ever-changing situation.
0: Exactly mm. right. So hopefully, yeah, he's he's given a lot of great information. So that'll be a really exciting interview to listen to.
1: Fantastic. Well, we shall jump into alternative news now. And then, uh, yeah, get on with the show. Some
0: folks
5: know about it, some don't. No. Some will learn to shout it, some won't. Some won't. But sooner or later...
1: on alternative news today we've got a bit of a first nations focus so last month andrew twiggy obviously mining magnet millionaire lost his High Court appeal to the federal court ruling in October 2019, which acknowledged the exclusive ownership of Yorizhbindi people of their country. This is where Forest Company, Fortescue's metal group, had its uh, solemn or iron ore mine, which has over the years extracted billions of dollars of profit from the ground itself. And this ruling basically represented the end of a 17-year-long struggle by traditional landowners, including traditional owner Michael Woodley. Uh, in, in the ownership of this land. So it's a quite a huge decision. And this denial of appeal from Twiggy uh, marks the ongoing protection or, and recognition that this land belongs to First Nations um, and the Yerizhubindi people. So that's the first kind of story and a wonderful win for ongoing land rights claims. Second up, we also have uh, the absolutely gobsmacking story uh, that Channel 7 presenter Sam Samantha Amitaj and Prue McSween are being sued in the federal court over a controversial sunrise segment concerning child removal in indigenous communities. Now this segment aired over a year ago. It was in 2018, March, 2018. And it had an all white panel, including radio host Ben Davis discussing indigenous child protection in which uh, the commentators like threw around quite a few really, really racist statements, including um, comparing this you know the removal of Indigenous children now to being just like the first stolen generation, where a lot of children were taken because it was, as I quote, for their well-being, and we need to do it again. So some absolutely shocking statements. I remember seeing the segment at the time; it got a little bit of media coverage, but um, really this this um, move to sue by eight separate complainants has now kind of amplified the case and brought it back into media attention. So Aboriginal elder um, Auntie Rhonda Dixon, Governor as well as eight other individuals have now taken the case to court uh, where they're saying that settlements like settlement negotiations have broken down. So they're, they're progressing the case. Um, and their quote back has been that basically sunrise platformed wealthy white women calling for a stolen generation 2.0 as a means for salvation for young people, like young indigenous people. And this is obviously extraordinarily shameful and really, really racist. So again, another kind of indigenous story has hidden the limelight.
0: Yeah, and I think that's something that is so, it's so heartwarming to see um, that, like you said, when it happened, there was not even like a, nothing happened because of it. It slightly got covered in the media about, wow, should they really be saying this? Um, But I think with the Black um, Lives Matter movements, we're actually seeing change. Um, even with CEOs stepping down and giving positions to people of color or minorities, um, things that were never and you did not see happening before this month um, and these last few weeks, it's actually given a lot of people hope that we can progress and move forward, and that this is actually working.
1: Just over on the over the last weekend, so actually on Sunday, we saw yet another racist publication. This time uh, by Peter Gleason, who's a commentator on Sky News, and his article within the Daily Telegraph, which you referred to the Black Lives Matter protesters and uh, First Nations and obviously people with, of African descent, again perpetuating these sorts of really racist terms. And whilst there were, like, the the story was printed in several different publications and there were alterations, like African Americans and stuff like that, the original article does exist and it's been called out by a lot of different people, including um you can definitely see rapper Briggs' statement on it from AB Original. So, like it's it's really interesting to see that just as we're seeing a case you know a a sue case come up against a racist comment in 2018 we're seeing yet another one in our papers this sunday like this last on the 14th so yeah those are my three sort of stories very like media i suppose orientated uh this week but it it's just that recognition i suppose that there's just there's such a normalized culture of either the dismissing, belittling or silencing of First Nation voices.
0: An interesting read this week was on police officers learning Indigenous languages and being Indigenous themselves in the town of Warracuna in Western Australia. This is a unique and completely new approach from law enforcement with Indigenous communities. The town is aiming to build relationships between locals and authorities in remote communities like in Warracuna where there are is a population of 200 people. This may pave the way of more Indigenous persons running police stations and other authoritative positions, especially with the current and evident police brutality against Indigenous persons. Most recently, a teenage boy being thrown to the ground by a New South Wales police officer. On the topic of giving more voice positions and power to minorities and persons of colour, Um, we'll move to the United States where Alexis Ohanian, who is a co-founder of Reddit, has stepped down and asked to be replaced by a black candidate on Reddit's board. Um, And astonishingly, Reddit has listened and replaced his position with a woman of colour. This is a massive step forward for Reddit who has never had a person of colour on their board. This also comes at a time when companies have been owning up, apologising, and for once in our lifetimes, taking responsibility and making change. Companies have begun giving a voice and position to minorities and people of colour in their workplaces since this year's Black Lives Matter movement all across the globe.
1: And that concludes Alternative News. I uh, will be listening to a song. This is Too Attached and their song Diversity. And then we'll be back in with an interview.
6: So my skin is convenient now If you want my story, pay me, pay me If you want my story, pay me, pay me Oh, so now you want me? So my skin is convenient now If you want my story, pay me, pay me. So my woman's convenient now. If you want my story, pay me, pay me. If you want my story, baby, pay, pay pay. me. Your mind can't grasp. Just stop trying to understand what your mind.
1: Buzz is 3CR's annual prison project, giving voice to our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander inmates right across Victoria.
3: It's good to be here because uh, Aboriginal radio and um, you don't really get to do this much brings us all together
4: time you'll get your time to take that first step out that front door to freedom beyond these walls make and sure I that just
1: want to be say thank you doors. to What's all of you for giving reason? us the opportunity to, morning. Morning. to speak on the
4: air the, reason, the bigger the calling make your commitment and watch things unfolded. and
1: you can listen to audio from this year's broadcasts and previous years as well online at any time just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond the bars
4: but also while I'm here I'd like to say thank you for all for coming um, Helping, giving us a chance to do this It's really good, you know, it's been going for a while now Hopefully it goes, it keeps going You know, like it's, it's good that we can do this And um, get our voice out there as prisoners We can't blame everything on the external So let's stop looking for it in the hands of the persecutor Because real power comes from here And it comes from family
1: if you would like us to post you a free CD, contact the station on 03 9419
0: 8377. After a long history of violence and injustice to the Sudanese people at the hands of the al Bashir government's severe military rule and conflict, a new government has begun to establish itself. Right now, Sudan's transition to constitutional rule is in quite a bit of trouble. The reform of political institutions has not yet fully begun while the country faces an intensifying economic crisis, a dramatic decline in living conditions with also COVID uh, spreading across the globe with that pandemic and a flare-up in localised violence. As part of the transitional deal after the ousting of former President Omar al-Bashar, it was agreed that Sudan would be governed by three institutions. These institutions are to be the Sovereign Council, the Cabinet, and the yet-to-be-appointed Legislative Council. The Sovereign Council is the head of state and symbol of Sudan's sovereignty, and the Cabinet is the Supreme Executive Authority. Currently, peace talks are being held between the attempted new government and rebel groups in the region, but there have been considerable issues between the Cabinet and the Sovereign Council they are struggling to decide on how to deal with rebel groups who are now demanding more than the 30% representation they have been promised in the legislature. Um, today, we have a PhD candidate for Middle Eastern Studies from Exeter University, Jihad Mashamun, joining us to talk about the current situation in Sudan. Thanks for joining us today, Jihad.
7: Thank you very much, Jessica. The pleasure is mine. And it's-
0: so for our listeners, I'd first like to ask you, how was the Sovereign Council and Cabinet actually established? Who or which organisation decided upon them?
7: Thank you, by the way, Jessica. It's when me and my good friend Andrew we wrote this article. We were looking into the political dynamics that brought these groups together. The FFC, which is the Freedom Forces for Freedom of Change, that mobilised the people, and they're composed of the opposition parties. Main, mainstream opposition parties and new and some and to some extent center-left main parties with them, but of course the mainstream were mobile, were there. Yeah. Now with the government, the with the PMC, the Transition Military Council, they were composed most. They were composed of uh, the military, uh, military of the former regime, Omar Bashir's last, uh, last promo, uh, promoted officers. For example, the commander of the TMC at the time, with, who's now the president of the Sovereignty Council. His name is General Burhan, Abdul Fattah Burhan. He was promoted by Omar Bashir before, before being ousted, before Omar Bashir being ousted, as the mm-hmm. Inspector General of the Army. Sorry. Given the dynamics, um, if I may add this one, given the dynamics that was happening at the time, the military actually did not want to give up power, because they actually, ex- I mean, from what I understood what's happening, is the military wanted to control the transition process, handing power back to the people uh, through elections. I mean, that's what they said, through elections. But in reality, what were they doing is that they wanted to hand back power to the former regime through those elections, because the former regime has enough resources to do that.
0: Mm-hmm. And that
7: allows uh, Sudan to gain, the regime to gain credibility again.
0: It brings me to my next question. The Sovereign Council includes 11 individuals, if I'm right, and all, they all have links to either the late regime, as you said, or the civilians from the forces of Freedom and Change Coalition, which you also mentioned. Do you think there is a potential for violence or strong handling to break out from the Sovereign Council in reflection of the council member's links and past, or is that, you don't think that's a top worry right now?
7: That is a big question. The military factions within the Sovereign Council, from what I understood from the opposition and from, from my own research after doing these, art, writing the article with Andrew, is that the military has been dragging its feet. It took a while for the military to approve certain changes to happen in Sudan. Even if you look at the example of the, there's a committee, it's called, uh, it's Arabic semkin and it's, uh, basically this uh, word Temkin means control from within. So this committee that has been set up by both the military and, uh, and the Freedom Forces of Change, who are members of the Southern Council. Some of them are members of the Southern Council. Is, this committee is headed by the military, mm. and the officer who heads that uh, Temkin uh, dismantling committee or co-chairs of the dismantling committee, he's well known to for corruption cases against him. Not there was a, It wasn't an official reason in the court, but there was a corruption uh, scandal.
0: Quite a lot of that, um, corruption in the factions left over from the uh, loyalties with the regime, working in the regime. No. And...
7: <laughs> but if I may also add this one, though, if you look at the recent events in Darfur, is that it was actually the military who attacked the positions of the rebels the rebels they had a ceasefire that's what abdul wahid the uh, movement. movement they were sticking to the ceasefire mm. now with regards to the military also it's uh, it seems that the military does not want to give up the power more than it wants to control the transition process to its favor um, i'm
0: going to move on to my next question some Um, have speculated that the UAE and Saudi Arabia appear to be positioning a paramilitary leader um, known as Hamedti as Sudan's next ruler. But the military is fiercely hostile towards him. What is the likelihood of these states and or other states being able to interfere in the political affairs of Sudan? And is there any way that Sudan can avoid this?
7: Thank you for those questions. Now, with regards to... Uh, foreign intervention or involvement, if we look at Hameti, hameti does pose a serious challenge for a lot of in the, for a lot of actors with regards to Sudan. with regards to the military, they actually wanted to use Hameti in the first year if you all i 'm sure all of everyone realized that in the first year he was Hameti who was speaking a lot on TV compared to the commander of the army. Mm-hmm. And they actually they were actually planning to remove. I mean, from what I can gather and from my own analysis, and that's my own belief, is that they actually tried to remove <laughs> uh slowly out of the out of the scene, but it didn't work out for them.
3: <laughs>
7: uh, now, with, with regards to Hemeti, he's a central actor in Sudan, given um, his involvement in Yemen. In mm. that one, his troops are involved in Yemen, being a uh, being uh, involved in the Yemen campaign, as official media reports have been re- uh, releasing. And also, his troops have been involved in uh, Libya. And in Libya, it's involved through Emirates. Now, the, here, this is where I remember when I was looking into this one, uh, this in, uh, information also is that in Libya, it's more of a continent of Egypt. And the Emirates, Emirates financing the war effort to support Haftar, yeah, Field Marshal Khalifa Haftar, mm-hmm. because the Egyptians don't want to interfere directly in the war mm-hmm. uh, militarily. They would prefer someone else to do the 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 task for them. Now, with regards to the the Americans, and here this is important because I did look into this, huh? When I'm sure. I mean, uh, when I spoke with people, I was really interested. Is that um, they don't have much leverage as we all understand? Uh, however, I—I I mean, that's what they, what I've been informed. I believe they do actually, especially with Lieutenant, with the commander of the council, the council, the, the sovereignty council.
3: Mm-hmm.
7: He, after he got a phone call. Uh, invitation from Mike Pompeo, the Secretary of State, he actually went and met Benjamin Netanyahu mm. to, uh, to secure his position as a future president, if he decides mm. to run as a candidate, civilian candidate.
0: I guess my next question is, to move, to move forward, all of the parties in the government need to work together. Um, as we've already spoken about, and as, I, as you've touched on, there are many issues with building trust, um, as well as the added pressure with Prime Minister Hamburg unable to divert needed funds from the military and other security expenditures to boost the economy. Uh, in your article in the conversation, um, you said they are up against the unrealistic expectation that they can quickly transform Sudan's political institutions and socio-economic framework. This inexperience, coupled with divisions within the alliance, is being felt during this current Juba process of the peace talks. Perhaps this question may be way too broad. What do you think will be the biggest challenge for the Sudanese government, if, if and when they are able to fix relations with each other on a wider scale in their, in, in their affairs?
7: It's not a broad <laughs> question, as you're going <laughs> to be uh, Because uh, I and Andrew, we've been there speaking about that even after we wrote the article together. Mm-hmm. Sadly, there was high expectation on Hamdouk's government to initiate reforms. In Sudan from the U.S. terrorist list that is blocking a lot of financial aid and debt relief mm-hmm. to Sudan. Looking at this, Hamdouk has shown also, from what I understood, it takes a while for anything to happen in Sudan. Let's not forget that the former regime they were there in power for 30 years in every institution. They managed to put their own people.
3: Mm-hmm. So
7: it's natural that they're going to delay anything that comes out of the ministers coming from Hamdouk.
3: It's mm-hmm. natural.
7: So Therefore, people actually had high expectation and Hamdouk's government to deliver quickly, dismantle the former regime very fast, and to have a support from the international community. Now, even if you look at one of the FFC members, I think it was either saw that who was one of the mediators at the time,
3: mm-hmm.
7: or even Ahmed el the spokesman of the Sovereign Council, mm-hmm. uh, they said they actually thought that when they remove the regime, they're gonna resolve every problem of Sudan, <laughs> but they realized that it was only just a surface matter that, that they opened up. Removing the regime was a surface matter that they uncovered, mm-hmm. uh, uncovered beneath the carpet. What was really <laughs> happening? Uh, there's a word I'm not sure I'm not I'm not sure if I can say it in English, but I'll try it in Arabic. It says "zada taqin bella" or eating, "put the gas on the fire," basically. Now, with regards to Sudan also, there are other matters that are important for the uh, for the government. Uh, for the government is that it's trying to achieve the peace process, but still their FFC members. Even though are involved are trying to get themselves involved in the peace process, which mm-hmm. is actually prolonging the negotiation process, it's not helping them. Mm-hmm. They believe that they're helping. And they believe that they're doing their part to introduce the people's voices and the constituents. It's actually prolonging the negotiations as one, and two, it's actually causing conflict in the negotiations with the rebel groups. Mm-hmm. The uh, the FFC member, uh, the FFC body. Keeps on reminding the prime minister to and the government to appoint civilian governors in the region. Mm-hmm. The civilian governors means are military officials that Omar Bashir has appointed in his last emergency measures before the revolution. master movement. Now this goes against the declaration for framework of agreement between the government and the FF and the rebels, who says that who are saying who agree that. The governors won't be appointed until the peace process is concluded. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of dynamics happening at once here.
0: I think that's a real pattern that we're seeing. Uh, They're pushing for a lot of uh, organization in their government quite quickly and forgetting that there are a lot of issues to be tackled before they can move forward. I guess the next step after the government has been better established is to create a coalition. If formed, the coalition may increase the potential for further fragmentation and weakening of the state. How do you see this part of the transition opening up? And in, in, even in regard to elections, um, and including a coalition, how do you see this unfolding in the future?
7: At the moment when the uprising happened and the revolution had succeeded in removing Omar Bashir, it was obvious that there were certain parties who were going to mobilise uh, within the, during the transition period for the elections. However, they were all, however, they were united in continuing the transition process. In the midst of the unity of the transition process, they, had, what happened is that there now there's infighting within the FFC, sadly, there's infighting due to short-term political ambitions of certain parties. This short-term political ambitions <laughs> is actually the derailing the transition process on its own because it makes people see lack of credibility and uh, if we look at the uh, for example the dynamics that's happening there's accusation against each other within the ffc members of the ffc within each other
3: mm-hmm. that
7: uh, they try each each one of them is trying to centralize power within the ffc for their own uh, good for their own interests mm-hmm. Now, a, a bigger problem that is actually not a problem, a bigger challenge that is actually being posed here is looking at the FFC, it's apparent that they don't have a national vision. National vision or goal, yes, there is the dismantling of the former regime, arresting them, opening up their, uh, their relations with foreign countries, resolving underlying peace and war security issues. But still, there is no national vision that is guiding mm-hmm. the, the whole transition program.
0: Mm-hmm. I guess just, so. They sort of need a the actual formed policy rather than just being yeah. against what's happening.
7: Pre- precisely, and uh, and FFCs uh, was actually formed quickly.
3: Mm.
7: It was actually formed quickly in a rush. <laughs> it was uh, and it was formed at the backdrop of uh, the youth and the people who were mobilizing in the streets.
0: Mm. A few days ago, the, a prosecutor of the International Criminal Court, or ICC, Fatou Bensaldam, made a statement that more than a year after Al-Bashev's ouster, the authorities in Khartoum have their hands full with competing priorities, including the COVID-19 pandemic, um, as they steer the nation towards a more democratic future. She did say, however, that the council... She told the 15-member council via video teleconference on Wednesday that meeting the Sudanese people's legitimate demands for justice remains at the forefront. During the Darfur conflict between the government, its militia, allies and rebel groups, uh, which began in 2003, some 300,000 people were killed and 2.7 million others forced from their homes. This is according to UN estimates. Uh, ICC warrants remain outstanding for Mr Al-Bashur, Bashir, is serving a two-year prison sentence in Sudan for corruption alone. How likely do you think it is that the ICC will be able to arrest and bring justice to the Sudanese people from Al- al-Bashar, not just for his corruption, but for his war crimes in sense of genocide and his other crimes against humanity?
7: I'm sure the, given the nature of the question, it, there's a lot of complex networks within it. Mm. With regards to the release statement, it comes during Ali Kusheyev's surrender to the ICC, and this was a big matter because he's one of the members who were, one of the warlords who was involved in the genocide in Darfur and the war crimes in Darfur. If you look at uh, the process, he actually gave himself up, he wasn't arrested, he gave himself up. It means there's gonna be a leniency when he presents himself before the ICC, is mm-hmm. going to be a leniency against him? Uh, for him, sorry, not against him, for him. But the good thing is that uh, he will be an eyewitness uh, to confirm uh, if he got the orders from Omar Bashir's regime and the security officials in, in this war.
3: Mm-hmm.
7: And also, if we look at, no, sorry, if we go further into Omar Bashir himself, uh, unfortunately, at the moment, it, uh, the prospect seems low uh, that Omar Bashir is going to be handed over to the ICC,
3: mm-hmm. and
7: that's because a lot of the members of the military they're hesitant to give him back. The reason behind uh, them being hesitant is a lot of them were themselves promoted by Omar Bashir. Again, remember Al-Qurhan has been promoted by Omar Bashir. Mm-hmm. Omar Bashir is a military, so hand, is a military member. That's why handing it to the ICC would damage the institutional affiliation within the military. A lot of the commanders in the military, they were were either loyal to Omar al-Bashir or loyal to the party of Omar al-Bashir.
0: We're going to have to end the interview there, but I'd like to say thank you so much, Jihad, for joining us today to talk about this topic. Thank you.
7: Thank you very much, Jessica. And It's a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you for hosting me also.
8: here I come, like magic I styling. Who black magic challenge Poof you need reminding. Getting round illusions, shump. Umah we she back again. You will never end the rain. We keep multiplying. to through the evidence, there's just no denying. baby by my definition, it just keep on shining. Who that lady got shumping? From my mama got the gift. We just put some peace in it. At least we keep on trying. Now. Hold on my youth, hold on my youth.
4: I told you. I-
8: Voice, I just wanna be equal. Gotta stand tall, we the ones, we the people. Look me in the eyes, this the cards you've been dealt. I don't need your table, I can sit by myself. Then let's take it back again, back, back to Africa. Matriarchy is a fake, black women per capita. I I Capitan, you remain my queen. I saw it in my mother, and I saw it in a dream. Holy Spirit, is she? You disrespect the womb. Where life all come from and it is to whom? Your praises too, or your races too They pushy like they like sharper, then kudos to you Ah,
4: and your back oh magic I can feel it in the air It's so strong It's like a magnet.
8: You would think that God is here and God is, oh. here and God is here And God is here And God is here
4: boots in Brazil and wiping off the eggshells in Moorabbin. Fascism's on the march and we say, yeah, nah. Yena Passaran is a new weekly program on 3CR dedicated to tracking this rise in Australia, Alta and all around our increasingly warm little
1: globe. Every Thursday at 4.30pm, we'll be talking to writers and fighters about some angry blighters. No, 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 no,
5: no, no. we don't need that fascist group.
1: Okay, so this week on Tram Thoughts, I was, to tell you the truth, wind down from assignments, I picked something which I thought was a little bit less uh, theory-based, a little bit more personal preferences. So feel free definitely just to shout out your opinions during this one. Um, But I wanted to talk a little bit about music videos, because music videos, as we know them, are I mean, they're a contemporary invention. They only came along with the development of film and they only really got popularized towards the end of the 20th century. So I thought we'd take a little bit of a dive today to look at what music videos can do in, like, in their accompanying of lyrics and music and you know, in a traditional sense. And I suppose when music videos are done well compared to when they're done badly. So first off, like, a little bit of history. Obviously, the, as I said, the music video only came about in the 20th century. and Apparently, it, in its first form, it appeared in the 1920s. It has been developed throughout, like, the early 1920s, 1930s. They were often, like, accompaniments to larger pieces of film or, like, little promotional shorts. But in the 1970s is where it really started to emerge. It was quite special. And when it obviously first came out, it was quite inaccessible. Only the rich bands, like the Beatles, really got a look into music videos. In Australia, obviously, music videos really were platformed and popularised through things such as, like, Countdown and shows like that. Um, And you start to see, I suppose, through the 1970s, this huge experimentation in music videos, as well as, like, the, the platforming of certain artists. So think of, for example, Queen's Bohemian Rhapsody, or in, you know, the early 1980s, even, David Bowie's Ashes to Ashes, which at the time was the most expensive music video ever made. We also have, I suppose, where it really starts to become a massive thing. And when it starts to become, like, weirder for a piece of music to be standalone without a music video like it it started to become the norm that every piece of music would have an accompanying music video that starts to happen in the 1980s with like the beginning of mtv and it's really funny mtv actually started out with uh the the first song it ever aired was actually the Buckles' video killed the radio star which happens to be one of my favorite (laughs) one of my favorite songs of all time and also Beautifully, beautifully, like rubbing it into music that now you know videos were synonymous with um, artists and the expectations on pop stars. Throughout the 1980s, and I mean the 1990s, uh, there was a huge criticism of MTV as well as a problematizing of music videos accompanying movements such as the civil rights movement or feminism. You know, um, platforms such as MTV did get called out as being very racist and ignoring african-american artists uh the 1990s we started to see a critique of music videos and the sexualization of women and things like that and this call in the early 2000s for greater representation and you know greater diversity and that kind of leads us up to now where we've got this really interesting schism in music videos where it's it's kind of this assumption that any song put out will have an accompanying video so I wanted to kind of get your view Jess on music videos now in the earlier discussion around this you said you, you you weren't really I suppose aware or paying attention to music videos what's what's your interaction can you think of like what, what's the first music video that kind of comes to mind I suppose
0: yeah so I think I vividly remember seeing MTV and my parents saying like no you shouldn't be watching that because at that point it was incredibly sexualized um it was really anti-feminist, I'm going to say, um, incredibly racist. Um, so I think that was probably one of my first, not fondest, first memories of um, music videos. But I think for me, um, a standout uh, was when at primary school, when we first had access to the internet and YouTube, was a massive thing. Um, and I think that's when I used to just, my friends and I would just watch music videos Um a standout is Daft Punk. I think it was like one more time. Do you remember with the blue beings jamming out like to a crowd and it's like this super intergalactical space adventure. That um, I think why I said that before was I think they're just so accessible and they're just everywhere. And I feel like now it's like I will only go and explore a music video if I'm like told that it's great via social media or I, I don't really have that exposure all the time, as maybe perhaps would have been on MTV when everyone used to watch it in the mornings or whenever it was on, sort of thing.
1: Yeah, well, this is—I mean, this is what, what I was looking at with like Countdown and also like your earlier sort of music videos. It was—it was really like only the special songs got a music video. You'd have like maybe a music video for the rest of the album or something like that. And thinking today, where it's like you cannot have a release of a popular song from a fa- so-called famous artist without mm-hmm. a video. Like, it, it's, it's almost ludicrous. And yeah. something that, like, following through with this is, like, there's been this heavy push, as with all things, to commercialise, you know, music videos. They're mm-hmm. seen more and more as an extension of marketing and they're more and more promotional. And, you know, I'm thinking of artists like Taylor Swift. Her music yeah. videos have almost um, trumped her music. It brings into this idea, these different approaches to music videos and what are you trying to achieve with music videos? So, I mean, Jess, I know that you're deeply into your music. So I suppose <laughs> when you watch a music video, what are you hoping it adds to to the song or the piece you're listening to to create, give it that extra dimension?
0: Well, it needs to resonate with the feeling that I've got from that music. So I'm not ever going to like a music video unless it has some sort of, and it may not even necessarily need to match the feeling that it gives me, but at least resonate with a feeling of substance or education to, like, what those artists are trying to get out of their music. So I don't I don't know, like, flume and disclosure, you, you and me, like, I, <laughs> I remember just going to early music festivals, like, just turning 18, and um, when they'd end the show with that song, um, there'd be these two, an image of these um, two people kissing, and it would just be... And even that was very techno and electronic. It would just it would resonate with the feeling of that that music and that feel of being young and so free and doing what you want. And now one of my favourite video clips is one of them is um, it's called Hijabi by Maya Haydar. I think that's her name, and it's it's showing it's giving like an fu to the system and showing how these group of women feel about, you know, their culture and their religion and Mm. music videos need to show what the music is trying to show.
1: Mm. Well, this is what I'm thinking. It's a big argument for me whether music videos can be something more than just commercial because Mm. in the way that we see them now, and as you said, there's so many of them, they're so produced. There's such an expectation for them to be around. It's very easy for them to become commodified into these, you know, little Mini profit centers and to sell the t-shirt rather than the artist or the song um but then again i whilst i was also doing my research or my thinking for this piece like i thought of recently childish cambino's this is america yeah which was like if anyone any listeners right now i'm sorry this is an audio (laughs) (laughs) medium definitely go out and look up donald glover's this is america because that is such a powerful music video And it's weird because it's one of those songs where I don't think you can have just the song without the music video accompanying it.
0: I completely agree. Mm. Like I've tried to listen back to it by my, like just with the lyrics um, Mm. audio. Um, But every time I've literally gone onto YouTube and had to listen to it with the visuals. I completely agree with that.
1: And so um, I was like, with that as a case study, I was like, well, what exactly makes it so special? Mm. And I think it like, it, not only does it take the piece of music, but it develops the piece of music. I think that's potentially where it creates and it develops that through movement. Mm. So a big part of like music videos, like just with the construction of music videos, when you do it as a media student, you learn things like, okay, well you have to make a cut every, you know, 10 seconds or so. Like there has to be this idea of pace and, and it has to constantly keep hooking the audience's attention in. And I've increasingly found that music videos that really resonate with me rely heavily on, really on movement. And it's about having a subject, I suppose, actualize what a, a piece of you know, music is creating. As you said, the feeling, the emotion, but even the, um, the expression. And that's been something that's been, really been getting into me. So like even things like um, uh, the Black Keys have a music video for Lonely Boy. And the entire music video is just one man dancing. And I tell you what, it's like the most hook you'll ever be for three minutes. Captivating. <laughs> no, I completely agree. I was captivated by it too when I saw it. I was like, "This is
0: perfect." Mm-hmm. I, I wanted to add though, there was uh, I don't know whether you've seen it. Samper the great Black Girl Magic. I think it really comes down to like even the director, the direction of the video as well. It's about um, sort of showing that in a world where image and representation is controlled, unfortunately, by the white and patriarchal systems. Um, It's Well, she actually said, the director of this video, um, it's really important to showcase that this isn't okay and that we can redefine these sense of beauty to create her own. And I feel like she completely did this in her video clip. It was just amazing just to see like it just, it was black power um, Mm. in a white patriarchal world.
1: Absolutely. And that was, I was also thinking, for example, um, AB original Jan's 26th mm-hmm. video um, grand master flash and the furious five, the message, which is, you know, um, like one of the first R and B songs they ever hit out. And it's just mm-hmm. an amazing piece of struggle in, in the city. And it's just, it just follows these, these, these word poets really walking mm-hmm. through the city. And it's, it's just amazing.
0: Yeah. I think I, I don't know whether I can say some don't work. Um, I can't actually
1: think, can you, do you have any that you well, it's, think that? Yeah, it's funny that you mentioned this because obviously with the commercialization of stuff and the financialization of a lot of stuff, years you, you, of downgrading quality because they're pushing it out. They're just pummeling yeah. the products. And I suppose I don't necessarily get on too upset with that. I mean, if you're going to have a crappy music video with just flashing lights, okay, that's your <laughs> Go vibe. But <for>
3: cool.
1: <laughs> something that has been ongoing has been like tokenism and dangerous motifs in um in music videos so for example i think of um a lot of uh especially within america because that's where unfortunately we get a lot of our media this idea of appropriation of african-american culture whether it be Mm -hmm. twerking as a dance move you know hairstyles or even the inclusion of that one african-american girl in your entirely otherwise you know white music video Mm -hmm. so it's like it's it does also like music videos also hold that critique of like, here is yet another medium or facet of our society where we're still perpetuating quite a lot of dangerous representation. And that is, if you think about it, because music videos are predominantly watched by, I would assume young kids, you know, seeking out their pop idols and stuff like that uh, can hold kind of dangerous implications for reinforcing those sorts of, you know, that, that, that appropriating of culture or, or, a big one, for example, was Blurred Lines by... I was really um,
0: just about to... Yeah, I was, that literally came to my head just then. Yeah,
1: um, so the song Blurred Lines, which which had, you know, a few men and naked women dancing around them.
0: I think even the lyrics, it was just um, saying that no, like, no consent was okay mm. sort of thing. And that was the uh, issue to start with, but then they made no help of it when they did just put, like, naked women dancing around them.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And so I'm wondering like I don't know, this is a, this is a very like personal preference chat, but music videos are I think yeah another like another outlet for as we've said messages to be disseminated and it's like whilst not every single video needs to be a piece of gold with what you're saying, they do have quite a lot of influence. And I think they influence like a lot of people who are watching music videos. I've kind of grown out of it, but I was watching them heavily when I was 14, 16, like those develop me sort of times. And I look back at like a lot of videos that I watched and I'm like, Oh, just, I'm just not cool with the representation happening. Um, Yeah. So it's Uh, something to keep in the back of your mind
0: yeah it is funny that you mentioned that because as you when you told me the topic of your channel felt this week um I did go back and look at my old playlist and think wow yeah that that for that music video was awesome, and I look mm-hmm. at it and it's got complete lack of representation um there's no political thoughts that you i would sort of i looked at it now, I look at it back at them now, and I'm just sort of like i don't there's a lot of you could you could pick the things that are wrong with, it. and I feel like those artists, especially now, would never would take it back. Would take their music videos back.
1: Mm. So I suppose, like concluding this segment, I I had to think of like what music videos have stuck out in my mind. You you've mentioned a few. Do you think there are any music videos that you think you've seen and you've gone, wow, that that held a lot more to it, or that that was like something that people should check out or see or disseminate.
0: I'm not sure I guess the ones that I have mentioned I'm gonna maybe mention again Mm -hmm. so it was it was um I think it's Maya or Mona Haidar um her son called hijabi right my hijabi and it's just it's just so cool and so hip and the girls are just so down to earth I know it just sounds quite like naive but it's what the message that they're sending is just like wrapped in just a normality how it should be like it's normal we're saying what we think um it's liberating to watch that film clip and also sound for the great black girl magic it's just beautiful scenes and it's just the way that they capture the scenes of girlhood um in in a sense of community i think they've just done that so well as well so i think i like it when the messages are discreet enough to show that yeah they don't need to be messages this is just normal and this is how it should be
1: Mm, absolutely I I definitely stand with that and I mean uh you will have noticed throughout this throughout the show we have been theming our music around uh cool music videos and artists um the one we'll conclude on now is one of my personal favorites it's Christine and the Queens and uh their song Sea. Uh, which is French and I've pronounced it terribly. So I hope you enjoy that. And yeah, we'll we'll be linking these music videos to the thing. Because again, as I said, this is radio. So apologies for not making it a bit more visual.
5: The whole song. Just pretend that all we'll along I've been there in mm-hmm. That's what I dream of when pen disbursed. But no, you just deem yours. Cause my love passes for rude. The warmth that now exudes. As you start to obsess on, now show me how you get to I'm alone. Come see some when you play me loud, baby. So come see
1: Finally, we're going to be concluding today with a speech I had with Javon Johnson, an American wordsmith and academic. It is about black joy as theory and resistance, and I think it's especially relevant in the times that we are currently in. So I'll pass over to Javon. Okay, I'm here with Javon Johnson about his recent work, A Story of My Mother's Hands, Black Joy
2: as Theory and Method. Good morning. Uh, Good morning. Thank you for having me.
1: Um, so your story is built around your mother. Can you tell us the process of choosing this extremely personal figure and subject and kind of sharing it in your work and with your audience?
2: Yeah, so, you know, I was uh, born, born born out of an intellectual tradition or, or started in an intellectual tradition that rooted in uh, a feminist logics that the personal is political, right, um, that, that, that our personal stories. Matter that they have weight, that they're not innocent. That they, I mean, you know, innocent meaning that they're not apolitical. That they have a, 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 a that they do a thing in the world and help shape you and can help shape understandings. And so it, it's in the light of that, the, right, this idea that the person was political. That uh, I, I often use personal stories, right? I often speak from the autobiographical eye in my research, right? Uh, because I am the one that's writing it, right? Like I don't speak from this disembodied place that one must. You know, when when writers are write about one, and I'm like, well, who is this one, right? Mm-hmm. Like, w- we write things, and so I wrote it, I speak from it, um, the I, uh, with all of my, my cultural baggage, my cultural capital, with all of my biases and, you know, concerns in the world goes into that. And so I say all that to say, I, I often speak from a very personal place when I when I do research. And, it, you know, I, I think this idea that the person was political and this idea that I, I speak from the uh, uh, used personal research also, uh, not only, again, the person is political, but also speaks from the fact that now I'm losing my train of thought. I had a good, I think I had a good point that I was going to make, um, but I'm, I'm slightly losing my train of thought. So okay. I, I might come back to it.
1: Um, so I suppose touching on this theory of joy and method of joy, mm-hmm. I kind of really wanted to break down our uh, theory of joy. Could you kind of break down how... You kind of deconstructed, I suppose, the definition of joy and then, sorry, of joy, and then uh, explored its theory. I, I, it, it's interesting how you've almost chronicled it all, mm. kind of broken down to a science almost.
2: Can you kind of break that for us? Yeah, so I'm, I'm working through, I think, a, a, quite a bit of, of, of people, right, that I'm trying to think through. I'm, I'm thinking about... In the paper initially, and again it's it's in its early phases, so it it'll likely change as I continually read more about what joy is and isn't. And I'm working through Ross Gay's short essay called Uh Joy is such a human madness. I'm working through Lamar Jarrell's uh work on madness, particularly how uh you know how to how to go mad without losing your mind uh uh and i'm working through fred moten's notion of afrofugitivity i'm working through for Howes essay on bewilderment, right? Like I'm, I'm thinking about all of these things, and and so part of the idea then to, to sort of step back as a theory is asking what does Black joy do, and how does it how does it how does it function in the world, and in 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 in, a, in terms of like resistance, right? Um, and um, not always having to think about large resistance, right? Civil disobedience, mm-hmm. protests, right? Uh, organizations and things like that, but thinking about everyday acts of Resistance, right—the sort of quotidian, right, what we do every day to push back against dominant power—and part of that, I think, Black folks often push back against dominant power by sort of refusing dominant logics,
3: mm-hmm.
2: right—a uh, a, a kind of, of kind of, a kind of everyday disobedience, right—a kind of right uh just a rejection of obedience right in the sense of so so if I, if i take it a step back and sort of go through some of those names right ross gay tells us in a very uh, brief essay that joy is indeed a human madness and and he gets there by saying you know he thinks joy is you know related to pleasure and delight but it's something different and what makes joy different is that terror is always present that which makes life absolutely amazing his joy is joyous because the terrorization of being without a thing is always present and it sort of heightens right uh it kind of heightens pleasure it kind of heightens delight mm-hmm. right and he sort of goes through this by saying if I, and I'm, I'm, par, I'm paraphrasing here but he talks about one of the most beautiful things he's ever heard anyone say that came from a student um, when he asked her how, to, how does she want her classrooms to look like Like what does what, what she aspires her classrooms to be and she goes uh, what if we joined our wildernesses together Right? And he's like, I want us to think about that seriously for a moment, right? Like this idea that the body, that our lives have an unexplored territory, right? And that in the deepest unexplored parts of ourselves is where sorrow is and what happens if we join those sorrows in this profoundly interconnected way. So I'm thinking about that, right? Like that's, <laughs> yeah. It's like, it's, it, it hits me, right? Like, what does it mean that I could share my sorrow with you and you could share that sorrow with me? This mm-hmm. kind of profound vulnerability, mm-hmm. right? And then I'm, I'm, I'm also thinking, I move from there to think about, Frenny how sort of discourse that w- wilderness as a metaphor might not be enough, that we might perhaps be thinking more towards bewilderment, that wilderness is the wild, the unexplored. But what happens when you get completely lost, that there's no reference of, of, of reconcilability with that complete loss, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that, that what happens then, and she goes, that's bewilderment that, because an enchantment happens, right? And I'm, I'm thinking about putting those things together all in conversation with uh, Lamar Jarrell Bruce's notion of what he calls slaveocratic reason and, and what he calls phenomenal madness, right? Um, and particularly he's arguing that reason, capital R, is a project really devoted to sort of white supremacist Eurocentric sexist homophobic right kind of modes of being in the world mm-hmm. that to be reasonable is to push back at that which is unreasonable and unreasonability is almost always attached to those subjugated beings in this sort of larger white world right
1: right because it 's like it 's defined rule system, right. so it's obviously the rules are made by someone, and that 's made by the power and the privilege right. of that better time,
2: yeah, and so he 's saying, you know, what happens to the unreasonable and and for him, and you know looking at decidedly u s scholarship, he 's sort of arguing that black folks have always been an unreasonable thing. Mm-hmm. in this and con- in, in in the u s right particularly thinking about like drapedomania, this idea that slaves who wanted freedom were crazy right mm-hmm. like that was a that was a thing that psychologists yeah. discussed right mm-hmm. that they 're losing their minds why would they want freedom it's like a, <laughs> right uh-huh. Um, And then I forget the other one. There's another name that came after slavery, another term about those who, once they had freedom, were obviously mad and insane, right? So you have this long tradition of black folks being inherently mad for wanting to be. To be. To simply be. Mm
3: -hmm.
2: The the nerve of that idea. Mm -hmm. And so I'm like, okay, well, if blackness is always already mad, according to Marjorie, and joy is a human madness... Right? What, how, how can we marry that and think about black joy as a theory that pushes back against what, again, Bruce calls slavocratic reason? This sort of dominant order that never saw me as human to begin with. Mm. Right? Does that make sense? Yes. And I'm thinking that hum- black folks owe nothing to the project of logic. We owe nothing to the project of reason. We owe nothing to the project of humanity. Right? Uh, because those projects never saw us as, as complete functioning beings to begin with. Right. And so I'm asking them what therefore happens? How does joy look like? And and, and and what pushed me to this, and I'm gonna I'm gonna sort of wrap this up because I can be long winded to this point, but what pushed me to this is like I think about like sort of all of these sort of US uh, sort of police state sanctioned deaths of black people. Right. Um I don't know if you've been following that, right? Um and what gets me through these moments are not always the the street protest but what gets me through is smiles is the laugh the ways in which black folks are able to still smile to have joy that does not make sense to like how do we still smile in spite of mm. in a world that does not understand or want our existence how do we still smile? And that, for me, is madness. That, for me, is 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 mad in a logical order. That that we're pushing back with via joy, and it's in that joy that we have a shared wilderness, that shared sorrow, that that we come together and hold each other in the most unexplored parts of ourselves. And the last thing I'll say about that is I I, I remember post. The murder of Trayvon Martin, and I remember that when George Zimmerman was uh, acquitted, and there were protests in the streets, and I went to some of them, and they were important. But what hit me and what sticks with me is how many of us saw each other and we hugged, and we smiled in the middle of the protest. I saw... I saw a father just touching his child's face. The joy in this sort of incredibly shared sorrowful moment is is bewildering in this sort of enchanted way that I'm trying to go, how do do I make sense of that? How do do I use that? How do I think through that as a way of, of being in the world?
1: It's a huge amount of body of work, and I think it's a very complex thesis, but it makes complete sense. Um, Looping this back to your mother and that idea of joy as a method, joy, I suppose, in your household growing up with that, Um, I suppose I wanted to touch on, obviously, we have organic moments of joy, uh, but we also have constructed almost moments of joy, and I was wondering if I could get you to kind of expand on that.
2: Yeah, so the reason why I start with my mother the the literal thing starts by saying this is nothing more than just a project about my mother's hands, right? I, were you were you th- you were there in the room?
1: I was there for the questioning. Uh, I unfortunately
2: oh, oh, I missed no, that. No, no, no worries, no worries. So the, the the project literally the first sentence is this is nothing more than a project about my mother's hands, mm. and all I do is talk about her hands, her brown hands, her soft brown hands. Which can have a red or dark undertone depending on who you ask or the chore that's doing in the moment right uh, which I make a joke because uh, you know a lot of u s black folks say we have in Native American in our families right which is true to some extent right um, because when when a lot of times slaves often ran some of them sought refuge in in indigenous sort of spaces in the u s mm-hmm. but whatever With that being said, uh, I talk about her hands. I talk about the cracks in her hands, the crevices. I talk about so much. I talk about scars in her hands and what they mean. And I get to this place uh, where I talk about, like, uh, my mother would brush our hair, right? Until there were entire waves on our head. And waves, I don't know if you're familiar with them. Uh, it's, uh, so young black kids often brush their hair and train them till there's like a little wave pattern going in there, right? Mm-hmm. It's smooth. You wear a do-rag at night to protect it, but it's, it's that, right? And I talk about how she did that till there were entire oceans on our head. And then I talk about, like, by the time I finished high school, I had traveled more than most of my family had ever done Probably, by the time I finished college, I traveled more than my entire family combined. And when I say family, I don't mean my immediate family. I mean my, my, my grandmother's children. She had eight children, adopted one. I have 40-some-odd first cousins. I had traveled more than them combined. And I talk about, like, you know, there was by the time I went to, like, my third trip, I didn't take pictures. And I used to always take pictures and come back and show my mom. And my mom was like, why didn't you take pictures? And I, I, I remember telling her, if I want to go, if I want to see Atlanta again, I'll just go back. And I didn't know then what I know now is that the world was sm- is smaller for me than it is for her. Right? And that was only made possible by her hands. Right? And what I mean by that is my mother has not traveled much. She's traveling lately because I literally buy her plane tickets. I want her to see this world that she opened up for me, the same world that refused to open itself up for her. Right. At that point in her life, I think as far as she had gone, it's was probably Las Vegas. And again, three hours from LA. Um, and so I, I say all of that to say like, uh, you know, I remember my mom wanted to go to New York and she was like, I just want to go to Broadway and see a play. And I was like, then just go. Like, for me, if I want to go to I'll just go. And, it, it, again, it didn't. It, it dawned on that me freedom. much later that she gave me a freedom that she never had. Right? Like, I am out of the country maybe five or six times a year.
3: Hmm.
2: She's done it once, I think. Because of my brother's wedding, right? He did it in the Bahamas, right? Um, <clears throat> and I say all of that to say my mother... Then uh, I go from that story to talk about, like, uh, my mother loves to tell the story that when I was a really young kid, when all the kids asked for presents for Christmas, uh, toys for Christmas, I asked for a cash register and a globe because I was going to travel the world, and I needed to count my money that I made while doing so, right? Um, <laughs> no longer need the cash register, right? But I traveled the world frequently, right? And I, I kind of knew I was as a child, and I was always... I just really caught up in other parts of the world. Like, what languages do they speak? What do they do on Saturday mornings? Why? I wanted to know what other people did differently and similar to me and and what different people did. And and how can I borrow good things from them? How can I share? with? Like, these are things that have always been on my mind, which is to say my mother instilled oceans in my head, right? To go back to the metaphor of the waves, Mm -hmm. right? And the, the oceans have always been on my mind kind of thing. And, and what it means to cross them right um and now i study colonial crossings of oceans but here we are so the point that i'm ultimately making here is um she collapsed the world for me with her hands it was her making and then i go from that story to talk about another story and this will be the last one to sort of tie it all together we i grew up really poor right um and uh and uh, I remember wanting, my mother told me, because I've been interviewing her for this project, she mm-hmm. told me that I wanted a smurf theme. I, I, my mother's very creative, but she doesn't really call herself an artist, right? And I was like, when did you start creating things? When did you start painting things, bedazzling things, making things look better than what, you, than, than what they, they, they were? And she goes, you know, you were young, and you wanted a smurf theme birthday party, and we couldn't afford it, so I bought the, the, the decorations and made the cake. And it was from then that she realized that she can make things. And she continually made things, clothing, all kinds of furniture, all kinds of stuff, right? Not like major furniture pieces, but like small, like decorative pieces. Um, And I, I say all of that to say my mother taught us that she gave me joy in that. The idea of creating is a joyous thing, right? Because her first act of creating was to give to her son. So for me, creating is a joyous thing, it's a it's a creating is always a gift. It's it's what I'm giving you, and in exchange, you give me something back. And my mother then it was in her creativity that she created. She birthed creatives. She had a son who's not only an academic who goes around speaking, but who's also a poet performer. Mm-hmm. She has another son who who is a fat, makes clothes for a living, has a clothing line, right? And I I always use that story to say my mother taught her sons that joy can be created through hands, that we can make a thing a thing. And I wanted to think about that as method. What does it mean to create and sustain that joy? And to go back to the theory of it all, what does it mean to make, create, and sustain that joy through our shared wildernesses, through our shared bewilderment? Does that make sense?
1: Completely. I, I know this is not quite the same, but growing up in my family with my mother, it's those small, tiny acts like making sandwiches or eggnog on Christmas, for mm-hmm. example. Mm-hmm. And they are these little rituals or things that they do, which is, sometimes mean the most, right. you know, compared to something like a formal tradition or, or something that costs.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And so, so that's really how my mother got into it. Um, she was a ph- phenomenal uh, Mother, not was, is a phenomenal mother yeah. still to this day. I mean, yeah, as adult as I am, there's still days I just want to call my mom and go home. am <laughs> um, like, I'm just coming home, like, which I do from time to time. I just go to L.A. and be like, all right, I'm just here, mom. I'm just here. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, yeah, and so, you know, a lot of my my writing and my work is an attempt to pay homage to the work that she did. Like, you know, to go back to what we were talking about as we walked over here, I often think about, like, I just planted an orange tree and a lemon tree. And they're small, they're baby trees. The orange tree is already bearing fruit, but at this early stage in the game, it's inconsistent, it's irregular, it might not even taste good. I've not even opened mm. one up to see because they, they're too small. They're too small. Yeah. I tried to open one, it was just difficult. And I was like, <laughs> ah. But the point is, I think about what if I leave that house?
3: Yeah.
2: What if I go buy a home somewhere else? That means I planted a tree for someone else to bear the fruit. And I'm okay with that. And I think that's what my mother did for her children. She planted trees for us to bear fruit that she made she was didn't even imagine she would taste. Right? And here I am just eating high on the tree, just loving the fruit. And I'm going, come on, Ma, travel this world, taste this with me. And so, you know, it's always this an attempt to be mindful that she planted trees without Without even like, like yeah, with like she planted trees, not not even knowing whether or not she would taste the fruit, and what the, the amazing selflessness in that, right? The amazing like the, like it's small, right? But the profound selflessness in it, that I am going to plant trees that I will never take advantage of. Why? Because someone needs them. That's it.
1: It's definitely something to celebrate, I believe, and something to pay homage to, and it's such a beautiful project, which is why I wanted to get you to speak, because I just think it has so much richness and power in it. Um, I suppose the question I always like to ask of these sorts of thoughts and these sorts of um, pieces of work is... Why this story? Why now? In the idea of, in the idea of, we we stand on giants when we, when we create these thoughts. And you've mentioned some of your inspirations. But how do you hope that this will contribute to uh, the wider movement or the wider circulation of ideas around this?
2: Yeah, I just I often want to think about small acts of resistance, right? I think about them because I, I'm I'm really invested in w- what kind of acts of resistance. Uh, that are not always big that we can still do. I think about that because I wonder about how resistance is. is. (laughs) Um, What resistance is? No, not what resistance is. Like modes of resistance, various forms of resistance. Like I'm trying to think about like how do systems co-opt them? uh, I heard a talk the other day where someone was talking about Singapore um, only allowing for there's uh, There are people to uh, uh, protest, but they have to get um, a a um, permit. permit. Yeah. I'm like, yeah, that's bonkers, right? And I remember being in college, we had a free speech space. And I was like, mm. that's weird. And yeah. why is no one arguing against this? Mm. Because technically speaking, I'm in a public university, so it should all be free speech space mm-hmm. because, you know. First Amendment rights in, America, in the U.S. I'm like, what the f- so I'm like frustrated. Like, and I'm like, that's a co-opting of resistance, right? Like you can resist if I let you, but by definition then that's therefore not resistance. No resistance. Yeah. So I'm thinking about the small ways that we resist, right? Um, what 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 Michel Desarteau might call a tactic, right? These ways in which people still find opportunities to push back. And for me, these are important too. These are not to supplant or replace these sort of larger sort of resistance movements, these larger sort of protests, these larger sort of acts of, of disobedience, but it is to say these two matter. Mm. Right? Um, I, you know, and even Patricia O'Collins in her keynote began talking about this mm. um, night one. Right. Um, of the conference, this idea that we focus on the, we, but we forget the sort of minute, the sort of everyday acts that people engage in. And for me, joy is one of many. And I'm interested in joy. I'm also interested in joy because I, I'm, I'm more silly than I am serious. Like I, I talk about a lot of serious things like in my, my own work, but I am actually a really, really silly person. Right. Like, um, I, I, you know, and I, I have this poem. Uh, talking about my own like masculinity and I grew up fighting a lot and how I want to have a healthier masculinity but this world has never allowed me to to to, to unclench my fist right Mm. Um, and I talk about that and I talk about like I get to this point at the end of the poem where it just reaches a boiling point where it's like you know I was was at this point when these people did this I was uh, and you know I was like I was 35 when this happened I was 35 when this happened and I was like I was 35 ready to break somebody wide open I was 35 when my niece grabbed me by the face and said uncle you're so silly you're always so silly and I think about that moment and how she knows me so differently than everyone else she knows me as this big old silly kid that comes back to LA and laugh and joke and just do the silliest of things with her and that sustains me that kind of I find love in joy and perhaps what I'm finding in my reading about joy is the sharedness of it the shared, unexplored territories of it, right? To go back to gay, to go back to friend, uh, Fanny Howe, right? A- and it's that that I'm that I that I'm interested in exploring both personally but larger and political, like thinking about how everyone else does it too.
1: Profound shared experience and mm-hmm. energy, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, well, the last thing I really wanted to ask you, because um, just from hearing you, you're obviously following a lot of different works and a lot of different authors. I was wondering, could we kind of get your... Book or media suggestion for listeners to l- look in and learn more about this area and more about just some of the top, some of the wide ranging topics that you have touched on today?
2: Yeah, oh, that's tough. I mean, I, I, like I said, I named, F- I am mean, now I'm forgetting Fanny Howe, the name of the piece, but if you search Fanny Howe, uh, Bewilderment, um, if you search up Ross Gay's Joy is Such a Human Madness, if you search Lamar Jarrell Bruce, J-U-R-E-L-L-E, Bruce, uh, his work on madness uh, and losing your mind or black madness and losing your mind. Um, Those are really important works. The last work that I I mentioned but I didn't really go into it was Fred Moten's notion of Mm Afrofugitivity, which what he's doing is trying to talk about all the ways in which black folks steal parts of their lives back. Right? So meaning like even in (laughs) so like even in uh, you know U.S. chattel slavery black folks had moments of what he calls stolen life where we we weren't free but we took back moments uh, to feel free be that you know runaway acts like that's why he's using fugitivity running away be it finding moments via song that's joyous be it um, you know at nighttime, whatever those moments were, mm. folks stole moments of their lives back. And I'm thinking about what that means in the sort of current moment about, like, what does it mean to take, like, moments back, right? Um, this sort of fugitive state. For, for Moten, black folks are inherently in a fugitive state, but that but that's neither here nor there. So I think his work, is it matters, I think, um, or is worth looking into, Um Yeah, I I think those are some, and I'm still searching for more myself, right? Like, Mm -hmm. again, this is a very, very early, you know, sort of iteration of this, right? And who knows what it'll be at the end? Who Mm -hmm. knows what I'll read that might change my thought process Mm -hmm. on it? Um, Right now I'm reading, though, a a friend of mine's book uh, called um, Salvific Manhood um, about uh, James Baldwin and what James Baldwin works, teaches us about black masculinity, and who has the right to be saved, right? Like, we think uh, in the U.S., like, black folks don't, aren't given multiple chances. They aren't given multiple chances for to be us, uh, to have salvation. Um, and he's sort of thinking through that, right? And how black male intimacy, queer, straight, and otherwise opens up spaces of a of, of very sort of spiritual salvation. Uh, yeah, that's, that's what I'm reading at the moment.
1: Well, thanks for your thoughts at the moment at the time. I can't wait until it manifests into something bigger or where it goes.
2: Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for for having me.
1: And so that wraps up today's show. All links will be in the rundown. Thank you so much for sticking with us on this Wednesday morning. Um, Just wanted to quickly end the show with the fact that we are currently hosting our station station, uh, station, station, 3CR Station Appeal. So this is a annual fundraiser that we do to raise money for the station we are a community radio which means that we can't necessarily we do rely on public funds to keep going um so if you would be interested in uh donating you can head to our website at 3cr.org.au or you can give us a call uh station's phone number is nine four one nine eight three double seven. that's nine four one nine eight three double seven, 8377 uh, and it just goes towards keeping the station going i mean we As I said, we're a bunch of volunteers here uh, doing this platforming community voices out of our own time and resources. And unfortunately, the station does require things such as lighting, electricity, and water to run. Uh, So any donations are very welcome and go a long way to keeping us going. (laughs) Apart from that, thanks for listening. Next up is Stick Together.